Welcome to the Vanguard Bible Church podcast. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, visit www.vanguardbible.org or come worship with us on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. at Freedom Middle School in Northwest Bakersfield. We hope you enjoy today's message. The United States Marine Corps has used a handful of slogans throughout the years to aid in their recruiting efforts. In the late 1800s, up to World War I, for example, uh, they inspired men to enlist with the phrase, first to fight. In the 1960s to early 70s, another example, they told potential recruits, and I like this one personally, we don't promise you a rose garden. How's that for honesty? However, their most long-lasting, memorable slogan uh, is rooted in American military history. In 1779, Captain William Jones of the Continental Marines placed a recruiting advertisement in the Providence Gazette that read like this. Uh, The Continental ship Providence now lying at Boston, is bound for a short cruise. A few good men are wanted to make up her compliment. The slogan, a few good men, gained even more notoriety not long after that in the Marines when George Washington later said, it is infinitely better to have a few good men than many indifferent ones. The tagline was used unofficially by the rank and file uh, over the next several decades, but it became engraved in the minds of Americans when a 1980s TV campaign proclaimed, we're looking for a few good men. The slogan was effective. Numbers went up in recruiting, enlistment. What red-blooded American man with a backbone and some testosterone in him wouldn't want to be part of the few and the proud. The phrase boldly implies we actually don't need a lot of men because we can do more with just a few good ones. It says there are men everywhere in our country, but in the Marines, there are a special kind of men. Only a selected few, the elite, the best of the best. Obviously, emphasizing the fact that quality men are preferred over a quantity of men. Now, similar to the United States Marine Corps, every local church needs to have a few godly men Not good men, but godly men who are willing to lay down their lives for the sake of the gospel by serving in the role of elder. So we're beginning a new mini-series this morning called Next Level Leadership. I want to invite you to open up your copy of God's Word with me to Titus chapter 1 and take out the sermon notes from your worship folder. If you forgot your Bible, just raise your hand and one of our ushers can bring one to you. My goal... Uh, this week and next, as we take a break from the Ephesians series, is to show you from the Scriptures, as best I can, the kind of leaders our young church needs in order for us to step up to the next level of maturity. 
There are two offices in the New Testament that describe, well, that the New Testament, excuse me, describes as essential for every local church. And they simply are elders and deacons. Today I'd like us to study the text related to elders, and then next week we'll learn about deacons. Here's the big idea for today. It is this, the sermon in one sentence. Elders serve the Lord's church by leading with humility. Elders serve the Lord's church by leading with humility. Now you might remember uh, Titus is one of three pastoral epistles in the New Testament, the other two being first and second Timothy. They are called pastoral epistles, excuse me, epistles, instead of because they were not written to local churches like the other letters that Paul wrote, but instead Titus and first and second Timothy were wrote, written to young pastors that were protégés of Paul's. He was writing to them to give them wisdom and counsel on how to build up and lead the churches they had been assigned to. It's commonly accepted that after leaving Timothy in Ephesus, Paul and Titus traveled to the Mediterranean island of Crete to check on a handful of church plants that already had started there. And after stopping in Crete, Paul then continued on to visit more church plants, and he left Titus there to establish order in these, the churches that were on Crete. If you would look at uh, Titus chapter 1 with me, uh, verses 5 through 9. So Paul writes, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers, and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant, or quick-tempered, or a drunkard, or violent, or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Here's the first point on your outline about elders, and that is that local church elders are appointed, not voted into office. They are appointed, not voted into office. In more than a few American evangelical churches today, the office of elder has gone out of style, sadly. Instead, they have trustees or a board of directors. And then in many churches who do have elders, they've adopted the same method used by our democratic government to install political leaders. They vote on them. Many believers are surprised when I tell them that voting on church leaders, in fact, voting in general, is nowhere found in the Scriptures. So that certainly begs the question, well then, how are they chosen? Well, they are to be appointed. The word appoint in verse 5, chapter 1, verse 5 of Titus, in the original language it means to set down or to put in charge. Titus was instructed by Paul 
go find men in these assorted churches on the island of Crete who meet the qualifications that he gave here in the text. And then using the apostolic authority that Titus had been given by Paul, he was to install local elders in those Cretan churches. Now, going back to establish churches to appoint leaders or elders was actually a common practice in the New Testament. We won't turn there for the sake of time, but you can jot this reference down and look it up later if you want. Acts chapter 14, verses 19 to 23. It's there that we're told Paul and Barnabas preached the gospel and planted churches in the cities of Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. They then circled back through those cities, according to Acts 14, to encourage the disciples, remind them that they would experience tribulations, and to appoint elders for them in every church. So, the first question I want to answer, it's a common question that I get regarding elders, is why the delay in appointing elders in a church? In a new church, in particular. Well, the biggest reason is that there usually aren't enough men or any men who are mature enough yet or qualified to take on the responsibilities of eldership. A lot of times they're new believers that start coming to the new church, or maybe they are men that just have never been discipled, they've been saved for a long time, but just haven't really grown or been taught the doctrines of the faith. Uh, the church then, especially the men, just need time to mature before the umbilical cord is cut from the apostles. Now you might be wondering, well, how long does it take to grow such men? Well, uh, it depends on a lot of variables such as where the men are spiritually when the church starts, uh, how much effort they put into their spiritual growth, uh, how fast they grow, uh, whether they are spiritually gifted for leadership, and more. This same process that is used in Titus 1 and Acts 14 was used by the network that I first planted a church with in my 30s, and it's also the same process being used by the current network we are a part of, Five Stone Churches. Now, just for the simplification and, again, the sake of time, I have a lot of content I need to cover. Uh, I just want to show you a couple tables here on the keynote screen behind me. Uh, in a Five Stone Churches plant, and again, this was common. We did this in the previous network I was a part of. The church starts out with... Uh, the Five Stones Elder Board and the senior pastor overseeing the local church. The authority remains in Chicago, and there's a local advisory team appointed on the ground that helps the senior pastor take care of the responsibilities of the church. The senior pastor then works to develop men. The umbilical cord remains attached to the mother, for the sake of the metaphor, once men are qualified and raised up that meet the character qualifications, they've been trained, uh, once they have it, are they able to fulfill the duties that we'll talk about in a few minutes here of being elders, we move into phase two. Phase two is local elders are then appointed by the network and the senior pastor. Authority joins responsibility. Local elders take over the leadership and authority on the ground. The umbilical cord is cut, and the church remains part of the five-stone family, and the church continues to grow. 
Again, this is done with all the church plants in our network because of the wisdom in the scriptures that we just looked at. Interestingly, it's worth noting that just as our state governments use wisdom by making teens wait until they're 16 to drive and 18 to vote and 21 to drink, the apostles did not hand over the keys of authority in a church to unqualified, untrained, or unproven men because it was too dangerous. Now, some Christians are surprised to find out that voting cannot be found anywhere in the Scriptures. And here are a few reasons why I think the Lord, speaking through Paul, gives instructions on appointing instead of voting. Uh, the second question that I, I'd like to answer is this, why appoint instead of voting on elders? Well, uh, first thing that comes to mind is that voting prevents popular but unqualified men from being chosen. A common problem in churches is that they elect leaders that have the most money, the most history, the most family connections, uh, who are the most well-liked, and they get chosen instead of those who are biblically qualified. Another thing that voting prevents is emotions overruling discernment. Church elections tend to be driven by emotions instead of biblical discernment. Immature members will let their emotions sway their vote to, say, the OBGYN who delivered their kids because they just like him and he was such a great doctor. Or the mechanic who fixed their car because he, get, he cut him a deal. Uh, or the relative who can get their agenda pushed in the church. Another reason that voting is... It, not voting, excuse me, appointing is better than voting is that less mature members have, it keeps less mature members from having as much influence as more mature ones. In a congregational vote, the votes placed by younger believers carry as much weight as the votes of the more seasoned believers in the church. It also, the members who don't tithe and don't serve have as much input as those who do tithe and do serve and sacrifice a lot for the church. And finally, appointing instead of voting prevents dividing the church because voting disrupts unity. Voting says, I'm right and you're wrong. Therefore, if my vote wins, you lose. It, it creates an us-against-them scenario within God's church, within the body. It pits one group against another. It draws lines in the sand and causes opinions to be elevated to the same level as biblical convictions. So, this brings us to a reasonable and logical question. If elders are supposed to be appointed by other elders, what happens if the elders get it wrong? What happens if they appoint the wrong guys? It's a great question. It's rare, but I have seen this happen a, a couple of times. Thankfully, our bylaws have an extra layer of protection uh, built into them by requiring elder candidates to be put before our congregation uh, for a voice, not a vote. Similar to what we're doing right now this month with our deacon nominees, when the time comes for elder nominations, we'll put names out and we will give 
a, a few weeks notice where if there are any issues, concerns about an elder candidate, they can be raised privately and dealt with. So, elders serve the Lord's church by leading with humility. Next, if you would turn back to 1 Timothy with me. This is the second most common popular text about eldering. Uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3. So just hang a left and go back two blocks. 1 Timothy chapter 3. I'm going to read verses 1 through 7. So this is now Paul writing to Timothy, who's in Ephesus, also leading a small church plant, also charged with appointing new elders. So, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, but not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into the snare of the devil. Here's number two in your outline. Local church elders must be qualified. Local church elders must be qualified. Paul lists 15 qualifications for Timothy in the passage we just read. And he lists 17 qualifications in Titus 1, 6-9. Some of the qualifications on these two lists overlap with each other, but overall I have counted 21 unique requirements between the two lists. Now, we don't have time to cover all 21 in the first half of our service today, so I'll cover the... I'll cover the first half, we'll take a break, and come back, I'll spend another hour on the second half, if that's okay with you. I was just seeing if you're paying attention. Now, thankfully, most of these are self-explanatory, so I'll just highlight a few that I think need a little bit of explanation. Notice in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2, Paul says, an overseer. Well, what is an overseer? That's not a word that's common in our vernacular, the word used in the original text is episkopos. It means to supervise or to be a bishop or pastor. Uh, in Titus 1.5, the passage we just looked at previously, Paul uses another common Greek word for overseer, presbuteros, which means older. So if you were to look at both of these Greek words for elder, overseer, pastor. Uh, basically, it's bishop, someone who's older. However, not necessarily referring to age. The word, presbuteros, also can refer to spiritual maturity. 
Thus, age is not a prerequisite for being an elder. Instead, spiritual maturity is the most important qualification. Age and maturity do not always go hand in hand. Now, I've sorted the 15 qualifications here in 1 Timothy 3, uh, 2 through 7, into three categories in order to try and make it simple and easy for us to, to understand what Paul's getting at here. And so the first category that he talks about is letter A on your outline. They must be qualified personally. They must be qualified personally. He says in verse 2, an overseer must be above reproach. This is a double compound word in the Greek text that literally means not to be laid hold of. Like you, you can't get a hold of this guy. In other words, nothing can stick to him because his character is of such high quality, his integrity is so high that nobody can make any charges stick against him. There's no outstanding, glaring character problem with him. It's important, though, to note he's not a perfect man by any means, but rather a man who is of high character. It means there should be no glaring character issues that might bring harm or shame to the Lord's name or His church. A few years ago, I, I came across a, an Associated Press news story that I haven't forgotten about since. They just left a mark on me. Uh, the story reads like this. Police Chief Richard Noble of Kewakasum, Wisconsin, demonstrated uncommon integrity by holding himself accountable to the same laws he swore to uphold. He wrote himself a ticket. Noble said he, was, he didn't want to take the easy way out by avoiding the consequences because of his position of authority when he accidentally drove past a stopped school bus with its stop flashing lights on because it was letting kids out of the bus to cross the street. So Nobel wrote himself a $235 ticket, docked himself four points on his driving record, and paid the fine. Most people wouldn't have known about this, but the fine actually appeared in local court records and a newspaper reporter discovered Noble's honest truth. You know, no matter the reason for the transgression, Noble told the truth, he did the right thing, he held himself accountable, and even when most people weren't looking. That's the kind of character that local church elders need to have, because they know God is always looking. They're the kind of man who, when the cashier gives them too much change back, he notices it and doesn't go, oh, cool, a blessing from the Lord. Instead, he goes back and says, excuse me, man, you made a mistake. You gave me too much money back. You gave me a 20 instead of a 5 here. Instead of saying, well, their fault, sticking it to the corporation. Next, you see Paul says in verse 2, if you look at your Bibles, he should be hospitable. It means to love strangers literally, or to be generous to guests. One way you can spot a potential elder is by looking at whether he welcomes visitors to the church and enjoys having guests in his home. 
It doesn't mean he has to be a great interior decorator or uh, put on a great buffet of food. It just means he should have a heart for outsiders and those who are coming in to visit the church and be willing to welcome them. Next, verse 3, he's not quarrelsome. The Greek word describes someone not contentious. He's not a devil's advocate. He's not looking for a fight or loves to argue. That's one of the worst kinds of men to have in an elders meeting. Just wants to strike up a debate and go back and forth. Elders should be men who will stand for the truth while also not getting caught up in foolish arguments. In verse 3, you also notice Paul mentions he should not be a lover of money. The scriptures do not forbid wealthy men from being elders, but they do forbid a man being put in the role because he's wealthy. Here, Paul is saying we should not have any elders in our church who are obsessed with earning and spending money, who struggle with materialism. Because, as he later says in 1 Timothy 6, the love of money is the roots of all kinds of evil. Next, uh, he says uh, in verse 7, another way that uh, they should be qualified personally is he must be well thought of by outsiders. This is referring to those outside the church. Uh, Generally speaking, unbelievers. An elder should not have a bad reputation in the community as a shady businessman or a bad boss to work for causing unbelievers to question the reputation of the church. Now, it does not mean, and this is important, it does not mean he's liked by all people because he's a people pleaser. Certainly, Paul and the other apostles had critics and enemies. Their critics and enemies wanted to kill them. They weren't liked by all people. And even Jesus said in Luke chapter 6, Woe to you when all people speak well of you. Even Jesus saying, it's not good when you're accepted by everybody. Because it probably means you're not living for me. Next, the second category of qualification that Paul gives us here in 1 Timothy 3 is that they must be qualified domestically. They must be qualified domestically. He says in verse 2, this man should be a husband of one wife. The phrase literally reads, a one-woman man. Now what Paul had in mind here has been heavily debated um, for decades. And you may not know this because it's not in your wheelhouse, but as, as a pastor, I've seen there's tons of books that have been written about this verse. Sermons given, conference debates, and on and on and on and on. And I know in other churches I've served, it's been debated in elders' meetings when elder nominations came up. And so I'll just, I won't spend a lot of time on this, but I'll carefully answer the three most common questions about verse 2. What does it mean when he says, husband of one wife? Well, after carefully studying the text at length, I think what Paul is saying is he should be a man who is faithful to his current wife. Paul was disqualifying men who are adulterers or polygamists because it was a problem back then. Now, despite this, there are some legitimate questions that 
the husband of one wife raises. First, can a widower who has remarried become an elder? Because if you read the verse a certain way, you could say, well, he's had more than one wife. And there are some who would say, no, I think, yes, that can be fine. Yes, a widower could be, who's remarried could be an elder. Second common question, can a divorced man become an elder? Maybe. It would depend on the circumstances surrounding the divorce, when it happened, and where. There would need to be a, an inquiry, a digging in and looking at the details of what happened and doing some extra interviewing to find out whether or not that man is disqualified or qualified. The third common question that comes up because of this phrase, the husband of one wife, can a single man be an elder? Because he doesn't have a wife. What about single men? Yes, I think they can be. But there is wisdom in having married men because marriage forces most men to mature faster. All men in favor of that? <laughs> All men who have experienced that say, I. <laughs> Again, a thorough inquiry into why he's single might need to be done. But uh, uh, now... This also, this topic of eldership raises another issue that has been widely debated, and that is, well, what are the roles of women in the church? You may have noticed in Titus 1 and 1 Timothy 3 that Paul is only referring to men. And that's because the role of elders is reserved only for men. The scriptures, excuse me, the scriptures clearly state that men are to serve in the office of elder and that women are not to serve in church positions in which they exercise authority over men or in which they teach doctrine to men. God's word is also clear that men and women are both made in the image of God. And they both have equal value to him. But they've been given different roles to play in the home and in the church. In fact, our church enthusiastically affirms uh, the God-ordained and significant role women uh, should play in building and leading our church. It scares me to think of where we'd be without the women that we have here. And I know the men would agree with me. This is why every leadership opportunity here at Vanguard is open to women except those that are excluded in the Scriptures. Now, notice in verse 4, he must manage his household well. The word for manage in the Greek text is a word that literally means to lead his household well, or to place someone in front of a crowd. It's referring to a man's leadership in the home. And we know from other places in Scripture that the husband is to be the spiritual leader of his home. He should teach and model the word in his home for his wife and kids. And he should lovingly discipline his children while raising them in the instruction of the Lord. Now this is an important qualification because what Paul is getting at here is that if a man is too weak to lead at home, he will not be strong enough to lead at church. If he cannot stand up to his kids at home and put his foot down and establish boundaries, he will not stand up to adults at the church that need some correction. Next, let us see the third category that Paul gives us. 
They must be qualified spiritually. They must be qualified spiritually. In verse 2, he says they should be able to teach. It, it means literally skillful at teaching. But this needs a little unpacking because he's not referring to just preaching. It's referring to a man who has the knowledge and the ability to handle the Scriptures. He is able when a church member has a question about marriage, money, parenting, lust, politics, and on and on and on. He's able to go, you know, let's open your Bibles up to this passage here. He's able to open the Word and to share counsel from the Word, not his opinions, but what God's Word says with that church member. Now, this teaching takes many different forms. It could be one-on-one in a counseling session. It could be in a small group, or from the pulpit, or all three. Not all elders are gifted at public speaking, but all elders must be able to open the Word so they can instruct and counsel and correct God's people. So in other words, what I'm getting at is that some elders, their teaching ability is best displayed in one-on-one discipleship relationships. But that elder would never be able to get up and speak publicly in front of a congregation. Uh, There are other elders who... Uh, would be gifted at being able to teach the Word in a small group, but not be good in a one-on-one counseling or discipleship situation. So you you get the point. Elders are men of God who know the Word of God like the NFL quarterback knows his playbook. He can hear a word or a topic. He knows where to go to find to find the answer. Not all the answers, but the big ones. And if he doesn't have the answer right away, he can say, you know what, that's a great question. Let me get back to you on that. And he's got resources at home where he can dig up and find the answer in the Word. But again, he's able to counsel from the Word on most of the major topics that would come up. Notice again in verse 6, another spiritual qualification is he should not be a recent convert. Meaning it's, it's not good if he's... Uh, just been born again recently. Elders need to have some seasoning in them. The decisions that they will make for a church will require them to tap into their years of experience walking with the Lord, studying the Scriptures and being refined by God. And so Paul is saying it's not a good idea to have someone who is a recent convert to the faith should be someone who's walked with the Lord for a while. How long? Well, there is no metric. It just depends. And that's why his maturity would need to be evaluated. But elders serve the Lord's church by leading with humility. Next, number three, local church elders must carry significant responsibilities. So here's the, here's the question I want to answer in the last section. What do they do? We spent the first point talking about how are they chosen. And then in point number two, I shared with you the qualifications of character that are required to be an elder. Now, in this third point, I want to quickly touch on what are they supposed to do in the church? This is very, very important because there are churches who have elders 
that are not doing their responsibilities. Or they have men who are not qualified and also not doing what they're supposed to do. So local church elders must carry significant responsibilities in a real general sense. There are three primary areas of responsibility that local church elders have. I like to call them the three D's, just to make them easy to remember. So that's what A, B, and C are going to be in your outline. Letter A, the first D, is doctrine. Elders are responsible for doctrine, overseeing doctrine. A great example of this is in Acts chapter 15, verses 1 to 21, where false teachers had began to spread a heresy amongst the early churches that men had to be circumcised according to the custom of Moses in order to be saved. This heated doctrinal issue was causing strife between Gentile and Jewish believers. Jewish believers who had come out of the Jewish faith and come to Christ, and then Gentiles from various pagan religions who also had gotten saved and had never been circumcised before. And so those who had been raised in the Jewish faith but then converted to Christianity still saw value in circumcision. And this is causing friction in the churches. And it was so bad that Paul and Barnabas were dispatched to go up to Jerusalem, the supreme court for all the churches back then, to make an appeal to the elders in Jerusalem to get a ruling on this issue because they weren't able to handle it in their local congregations. James and the Jerusalem elders in Acts 15, of course, decided, thankfully, men, that circumcision was not required for salvation. Only repentance and faith in Jesus Christ could do this. And so, elders are charged with what I like to sometimes say, being guardians of the gospel. Practically speaking, this means they oversee all the teaching in the church that's done to ensure that it is in line with the Scriptures. Examples. The children's ministry curriculum. The student ministry curriculum. Adult small group curriculum. Uh, a practical illustration of this would be thus, and I ran into this actually when I was a small group pastor, I remember being hired at one church to come in and help unite and organize their small group ministry, and I got significant pushback from a couple small groups who had been choosing their own Bible study materials for a while. And they did not want me looking at the materials and giving a thumbs up or thumbs down on it. And they did not want to participate in the curriculum that the senior pastor and I were trying to get all the groups on. We wanted to get them studying the same thing for a while. This would be an example of some people who did not want elder leadership, did not want accountability, and they wanted to be able to choose for themselves what they studied, not realizing that what they were studying could be off base from the Scriptures. Next, the second D elders are responsible for is discipline. Discipline, that's letter B. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Paul instructs the Thessalonians to respect the elders who are, he says, among you, over you, and admonish you. It's an interesting uh, turn of phrase that he uses, because he, he says they are among you, and I think what he means by this is they're members of the church just like you, they've got families and jobs just like you, but they're also over you in spiritual authority, and when necessary, 
they will admonish you in the Lord. Now the word admonish means to impart understanding. I like that because it's sort of a nice, it's a nice way of sort of describing something that can be painful and difficult to hear. Um, one other Greek uh, dictionary I, I looked at defined the word admonish as to put sense into somebody's head. <laughs> that originally was not, in my, it was not in my manuscript, but I thought you might enjoy hearing that. So I took it out thinking, oh, that might be a little rough. Um, but here's what it is. The, the word for admonish, it carries with it the, the, the idea of correction with the intention of instructing. It means to correct in order to instruct. As guardians of the gospel, elders are charged with protecting the unity and the purity and witness of the church. Church discipline is something that they oversee. And, and simply stated, church discipline is a process in which the elders endeavor to restore a member who's continuing in sin that's harming themselves, the Lord's name, and the testimony of the church. God's word has authorized elders to use discipline if necessary because the Lord is not pleased when professing Christ followers don't act like Christ followers. Now, this is not referring to every little sin. This is really talking about habitual sin that is harming their walk with the Lord, harming the church, and the Lord's testimony, the testimony of the church, excuse me. It hurts the credibility of the message we proclaim in the eyes of unbelievers if there is glaring sin issues in any of our members. And God has charged elders to deal with that. And those elders in churches who don't deal with it, they will answer to the Lord for being afraid to. Next, letter D, the third D. Sorry, it's the third D. Letter C is what I meant to say. Direction. So we have doctrine, we have discipline, we have direction. In 1 Peter chapter 5, Peter charges elders to shepherd God's people by exercising oversight and being examples to the flock. He then encourages his readers in 1 Peter 5 to submit to their elders. So he gives a charge to the elders and he gives a charge to the members. Hey, you guys do your job up there, and members, you do your job too. Shepherding is a common metaphor for church leadership because Jesus referred to himself as a shepherd, and he called his followers sheep. Now, there's a reason Jesus did that. Everybody in the first century knew that sheep needed shepherds, not only for nurturing, but also for leading and protecting. They needed to be led and protected. Without shepherds, sheep wander. They are, in the animal kingdom, some of the least intelligent animals, least or most vulnerable, and most dependent animals in the animal kingdom. And so elders provide direction by praying, consulting the scriptures, gathering wisdom, and then discerning the direction the church should go, and gathering the sheep, and if necessary, reining in any sheep that wander off in order to watch over their souls. So this includes, in American church, in the 21st century, 
elders uh, help oversee and provide direction on how we staff a church, what the budget looks like, what ministries get emphasized, because not every ministry can be emphasized and not every ministry can be done. Not every, not, no church can do everything. Elders help discern that. So, doctrine, discipline, direction. Did you get them written down? Good for you. If I were to boil down and just simplify, apart from the character qualifications, what sets elders apart from other leaders in the church? It would be these two things. You might want to write this down. It's their ability to handle the Word of God. And secondly, having the backbone to counsel, correct, and confront with the Word of God. I'll say that again. Elders have the ability to handle the Word of God. And then secondly, they have the backbone to counsel, correct, and confront with the Word of God. Now, I say this because I have seen men over the years in various churches I've served who were godly and who knew the Word of God. They knew Scriptures well, but they did not have the backbone to stand up and counsel, correct, or confront someone. They were just... Not that kind of man. They were, they were just more nurturing, more passive, introverted type of personalities. But elders know the Word of God and have the backbone to counsel, correct, and confront, and they do it because the Lord will hold them accountable for the souls they oversee. That's a verse that keeps me up at night. It's Hebrews 13, 17. Hebrews 13, 17. In essence, what the author of Hebrews says there is, don't make the elders' job harder because they keep watch over your souls and will give an account before the Lord. And so when I'm afraid, and I don't want to counsel, confront, or correct, I still do it because I realize I have to fear the Lord more than I fear man. It's uncomfortable. It's one of the parts of the job I hate to do. But I do it because... Hebrews 13, 17 says, I'll be held accountable for the souls that I've been entrusted to oversee. And so do I want that church member to be mad at me? Or do I want the Lord to say, why didn't you do anything? Now, elders, they handle the word of God. They counsel, correct, and confront. And they're able to do it because they fear the Lord more than they fear men. That's another key quality. They fear the Lord more than they fear men. So when push comes to shove, mm, man, we might have to have a conversation with you know, Mr. Mr. Smith in our church. He's not going to like this conversation we're going to have to have. It could upset him. Elders go, oh well, we're going to please the Lord. Because we'd rather Mr. Smith be upset than the Lord be upset with us. Now, applications. Just in case you were wondering, oh, how is Pastor Kerry going to come up with some applications from these texts? I mean, they really don't apply to us mere mortal lay people, right? Well, I have a few. I've got one for men, 
Two for women and one for the entire church. Two for women? It's an elder passage. I know. I know. You'll see why. Here's the first one. Men, strive to be elder qualified. Strive to be elder qualified. Please, men, do not look at these passages and say, oh, I'll never be able to get there. I'll never be that good. That is a cheap cop-out. Instead, I challenge you and urge you and encourage you, men, look at the passages of Titus 1 and 1 Timothy 3 and go, man, I want to be that kind of man. Lord, help me get there. Because if it's written in God's Word, it's possible to do. By the grace of Jesus Christ and the help of His Holy Spirit, it is possible. Because if it wasn't possible, it wouldn't be there. So look at those passages and go, Lord, would you help me to get there? Because if you can get there, men, your family's better and the church is better. Your family needs a qualified elder in the home to lead them. God's given you unparalleled influence in your home that He wants you to use to help your family walk with the Lord. Your church needs a pool of qualified men to serve as elders, deacons, and small group leaders to help lead our church. Some men may be qualified, but unable to serve for personal reasons. Other men are qualified, but have to take a break from serving. So we need a deep bench, to use the athletic metaphor. We need more than just a few. We need as many as possible. Church history has proven that the spiritual depth of our men will determine the spiritual strength of our church. That is why, it is very reason why, I lead a men's Bible study in my home, and I have since we started Vanguard. It is why I created the Bacon and Bibles Men's Breakfast. It is why I challenge the men in our church periodically, open your Bibles, take notes, put your arm around your wife. Don't look on your wife's Bible, men. You get yours out. Don't forget your Bible. You bring it. I do it because I care for you. I love your family. And I believe you can become the leader God wants you to be, man. By walking closely with Jesus. Second application, this would be 2A and there's 2B for women. Women, encourage your husband's spiritual growth. Please, encourage it. Encourage your husband's spiritual growth. I've known a few men over the years who could have become elders if their wives had chosen to be their husband's biggest cheerleader instead of his biggest critic. Ladies, isn't a man with these qualities in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 attractive? I mean, don't you want to have a man like that in your house? The answer that I've heard over the years is yes. Because God has given you a lot of influence in the home, I want to urge you to affirm positive behaviors, to make suggestions and pray for your husband. And don't do the passive-aggressive stuff that some women have tried. Like, hey honey, do you know what they did at the Johnson house yesterday? They prayed at dinner. Can you believe that? When's the last time we prayed at dinner? Just saying. It doesn't motivate a man 
to lead spiritually. Next, ladies, women, to be, strive to become godly. And here's why. An ungodly wife can cause a godly man to be disqualified. It's not explicitly stated in the text, but it does happen. I have sat in more than one elder meeting in more than one church looking at a list of qualified elder candidates only to see a few disqualified because their wives were a liability. And the collective council of those elder teams that I was on decided he's a godly man, but unfortunately his wife is not following his leadership. And if, she, if we make him an elder and he goes home and he shares things with her because she's a gossip, sensitive, confidential material will get out into the congregation. We can't have that. Or because she's too opinionated or divisive, she will cause more trouble than it is worth having him on the elder board. It's so. Ladies, strive to be godly so the Lord can use you and your husband to the max in his church. So you don't keep your husband from missing out on opportunities God might want him to have. Finally, for the entire church, Number three, pray for the Lord to provide qualified local elders. It is a significant need for our church. There may be a few men already in our church the Lord is preparing for this role. And there may be a few elder qualified men the Lord is going to bring to our church that aren't here yet. Regardless, we need to be patient and avoid the temptation to lower God's standards just so we can fill empty seats. For example, if, if the pilot on your commercial airline flight has a heart attack, you would not want the flight attendant asking if there are any volunteers to fly the plane. <laughs> no, you would want the flight attendant to ask, is there a pilot on board? You see, just having someone in the captain's chair would not make everything better in that situation. What's my point? Some empty seats need more than a warm body. They need someone who's qualified. Some empty seats need more than a warm body. They need someone who's qualified. Well, you've done a, a great job taking notes. Uh, you heard me reference the most popular, most effective, effective slogan for the Marines, a few good men, when we started our time together this morning. Well, in 1992, a screenplay written by Aaron Sorkin was released as the Hollywood motion picture, A Few Good Men. It was directed by Rob Reiner, and the film featured a star-studded cast that included the likes of Tom Cruise, Jack Nicholson, Demi Moore, Kevin Bacon, Kiefer Sutherland, and on and on. In the story, Cruise is a military lawyer tasked with defending two U.S. Marines accused of killing a fellow Marine at the Guantanamo Bay Naval Base in Cuba. At the climax of the movie, 
Cruz's character risks his career by calling Jack Nicholson's character to testify on the witness stand. While being questioned on the witness stand, Cruz becomes frustrated with the evasiveness of Nicholson's answers because his, Nicholson's character was guilty. And so as tensions rise in the cross-examination, Nicholson asks, Do you want answers? To which Cruz says, I want the truth! And then Nicholson replies with the most famous line from the movie, You can't handle the truth! We're looking for a few good men who can handle the truth of God's Word. Elders serve the Lord's church by leading with humility. Would you join me as we close in prayer? We hope you've enjoyed this Vanguard Bible Church podcast. You can find more sermon messages online at vanguardbible.org. Have a great week, and we hope we'll see you soon.